Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Going back to politics, while Michael Bloomberg had a poor showing at his first debate, he is changing the game on how his campaign is advertising. The latest effort he has is recruiting deputy digital organizers at a cost of $2,500 a month per person to post pro-Bloomberg messages on their personal social media accounts and also to send text to everyone in their contacts list. This is an effort that's going to get started in the lead up to Super Tuesday on March 3rd, so expect to see a lot more of him still. For more on this story, we spoke to Georgia Wells. She's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal for how the Bloomberg campaign is blurring the lines between traditional campaign organizing and the distribution of sponsored content. The Bloomberg campaign is hiring hundreds of people across the state of California, and it's paying them to reach out to all their contacts on their phone and also post on social media messages that the campaign approves of about Michael Bloomberg. And they're getting paid a pretty hefty sum. I think it's $2,500 per month to promote Bloomberg. And what's interesting here is in the brand retail world, we've seen a lot of rules come down about how you need to label posts when someone's getting paid to post it. But for the political landscape, this is kind of the wild west. Like the folks who are getting paid to do it, some of them on their social media handles, they're mentioning that they're doing some work for the campaign. But when they're texting their friends, there's no disclosure that like, by the way, I'm also getting paid to send these messages. If somebody gets hired by the Bloomberg campaign and then they're supposed to post these links and different things like that to their own social media handles, not necessarily something that is a Bloomberg account. They're posting it to their own personal handles. They're using an app called Outvote. And on that app, they see these kind of pre-selected approved messages. And they'll often link to either press releases or news stories about Bloomberg or other candidates. And they select which messages and who to send them to. And so if you're on the receiving end of it, it looks like your buddy Jeff just messaged you something that he composed. Like, this is why I support Bloomberg. And here's a link to something you should check out. But there's no indication that he did it through an app and he's receiving money for it. To staff this whole thing, the campaign is hiring more than 500 what they're calling deputy digital organizers, although I think they changed the name more recently. So they're now calling them deputy field organizers. I'm not aware of exactly the level of data that the campaign receives from the app, but I know, for example, the users can upload information about certain people that they've tried to do outreach to and kind of add notes about like, you know, I contacted this person, I think they are a likely voter, or notes like those. People from the Bloomberg campaign are really calling this the future of political organizing. And every cycle, we see something different, something new, a new way to use social media. And this is kind of that next step, but it's kind of blurring the lines of the traditional models and this new model, because we don't know, you know, you're not explicitly saying this is sponsored content. How do the social media platforms handle this type of usage of their platform? The social media companies, as well as regulators, haven't quite caught up. Facebook, for example, their rules in the past were largely around political advertising and then also around influencer marketing, but it treated them as largely separate. And so after the New York Times reported last week about 
the Bloomberg campaign hiring influencers, Facebook has now started to come up with rules around labeling. But so I'm really curious to see how these rules evolve. For their part, the Bloomberg campaign doesn't necessarily think that these posts need to be labeled as such as ads or anything like that. They just see it as a new form of political organizing rather than paid content. Yeah, exactly. The folks I spoke with over there kind of actually described it as sort of an obvious evolution that if you think of the traditional political organizer kind of doing phone banking or going door to door and talking with neighbors or something, their position is sort of why wouldn't people then kind of use their social networks and the trust and credibility they have there to reach people where they're hanging out. And so I think that that's a really interesting point. Like, of course, people are going to want to use their social networks. I think also interesting is to see whether the regulators will have anything to say about that. Georgia Wells, tech reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Next, we have an interesting story about bees. There's been a recent string of beehive heists in California's Central Valley. There's a booming demand for honeybees used for pollination rather than for their honey. And beekeepers are making the trip to the area to make some money. But also on the lookout are thieves looking to steal them and make a profit. For more on these hive heists, we spoke to Oliver Millman, reporter at The Guardian. The pollination, mainly of almonds we're talking about here. I mean, obviously there's all kinds of crops in the, the Central Valley, but almonds are the ones that are really driving this huge demand for pollination. It's a huge industry that requires a lot of bees. About 30 billion bees, in fact, come from across the U.S. taken to Central Valley just for this short period of time, around a month in um, January, February time, to pollinate almonds. And the kind of stresses on bees that there are in the U.S. and around the world, we're talking about honeybees here, managed bees, mean that it's becoming harder and harder for almond growers to find bees to pollinate their crop. So that's led to an increase in the cost of a hive. It used to be about $35 a beehive a few years ago. It's now up to around $200 a hive. So it's quite a valuable business now. And thieves are kind of cashing in on that because it's so lucrative to have bees and to be able to sell them on to growers. Tell us one of these stories about somebody who got their hive stolen. Because as you mentioned, you're talking about millions of bees. This gets into the thousands and thousands of dollars. I think somebody lost $100,000 over losing their beehives. So this man called Lloyd Conniff, he actually was one of the biggest victims so far of this type of crime. He wasn't keen on bringing his ties down to California from Montana. The lure of the almond dollars was too much for him, and he brought them down in 2017. He brought 488 of his 489 beehives down to he only left one behind and he left them overnight in a kind of staging area. Went back the next day, it was foggy and couldn't see a single hive, not because it was foggy, but because they'd all been stolen. And this was a pretty professional operation. They'd moved in quickly overnight with forklifts, put them onto the back of trucks and taken them away in a, maybe an hour or so. It didn't take them long to do and beekeepers tend to leave their hives out in remote areas, fairly open, not behind gates or anything like that. So if you're a determined organized thief, you can take away a lot of equipment that's worth a lot of money. Who are these thieves then? They have to be people in the know. It's got to be a pretty small pool of people who know how to handle bees and transport bees. But there's also reports of some of these beehives after they've been stolen just kind of being ransacked and destroyed, really. Lloyd and and 
several other beekeepers were victims of this, what looks to be the same operation and a couple of guys were arrested and are now facing trial and police allege that they swept up hundreds of beehives from various counties in California, took them to a patch of land just outside uh, Fresno and, and chopped them up so they could basically multiply bees. So you can basically um, cut a hive in half and as long as you get a queen for the second hive, you've basically turned one hive into two and therefore can then ship them on and sell them for more money. Doubling your money for each hive you manage to multiply. So, um, yeah, it's certainly a kind of sophisticated professional operation involving plenty of thefts and then a reselling operation. As I say, a couple of these people were arrested, and nevertheless, there are other operators who are doing this. There are desperate beekeepers who aren't able to meet the number of hives that they've agreed to with growers. So they're short, they're under pressure from disease, under pressure from climate change, under um, pressure from pesticides, which are all harming bee uh, populations. So in order to meet the quotas they've agreed to, they sometimes feel forced into actually stealing from other beekeepers. It's just so interesting how, you know, you think of bees and honeybees specifically, you think of them for their honey, obviously, but mm. they're being more valuable as these contract workers, if you want to call them, every time the season comes around. I think if you look back 20, 30 years ago, the image that we would have of beekeepers would be fairly accurate. It would be somebody who would keep some bees, make some honey, sell that off to the public to put onto their um, pancakes or their toast or whatever, and that would be enough to make them a nice bit of ma- amount of money. Now the price of honey is, is dropping quite sharply. Um, a lot of that is blamed on imports from overseas. So they have to find another source of income and the kind of modern industrialized form of farming we have now, big agriculture, demands a huge amount of pollination for monocultural crops such as almonds and blueberries and other other things that need pollination. So these bees now travel all around the country. They go from Florida, they can go up to Maine, they can go to New York, to Oregon and, and California to pollinate different things. It's a very different lifestyle to what most people would imagine beekeepers to have. Oliver Millman, reporter at The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally for this week, we're learning about how the CIA and the NSA spied on both allies and enemies through a company they owned that made cryptography equipment. The company was called Crypto AG, and it sold encryption machines to countries like India, Iran, Pakistan, countries in Latin America, and even the Vatican. What none of these countries knew was that the machines had been rigged by the CIA so they could easily break the codes that countries used to send encrypted messages. It was one of the most audacious operations run by the CIA and provided a wealth of intelligence for the U.S. For more on how this whole story played out, we spoke to Greg Miller, reporter for The Washington Post. One of the lines that we use in the story that I think really captures it well is that not only was the CIA taking these countries' money, but it was stealing their secrets. That's part of what makes this such an astonishing story of espionage, that for years there was this company in Switzerland that was one of the world's leading makers and sellers of encryption equipment for governments all over the planet. They buy these devices because they trust it and believe that these devices are going to protect their communications. And what none of them ever knows until now, literally now, is that this company was completely owned by the CIA in a secret partnership with the German intelligence agency, the BND. How we're learning about it is the CIA actually wrote its own history of what happened. And this is what you guys obtained at the Washington Post that you were able to write this story with. So 
sometimes, you know, from time to time, we will learn about secret operations that the CIA has done. But we're almost always having to guess at the true dimensions of them or the full detail of how they worked. What makes this story so extraordinary is we actually have the CIA's own internal history of this program, which traces it from its origin almost until its very end. And it lays it out in such detail that it identifies the CIA officers who were running it the company executives who were entrusted to execute it, and then the countries that were exploited by it. So it's really unusual, if not unprecedented to me, to see the entirety of an operation run by the CIA like this just laid bare and for us to have access to all of that. The program was codenamed both Rubicon and Thesaurus, but the length that this went on throughout, the deal with this company, Crypto AG, that they struck with the CIA started in 1951 and then the CIA bought them in the in the 70s and the whole thing wasn't disbanded until 2018 so tell us about the machines and the encryption and how it was being sold to governments I've never seen an operation like this have that kind of lifespan. I mean, to go on decade after decade after decade, I just can't think of anything that comes close to being comparable to it. And it starts in a very simple time, in a very crude device. It traces back to World War II, actually, when this Swedish inventor and entrepreneur comes up with a machine, a mechanical device for encrypting messages, and manages to get a big contract with the U.S. Army in World War II. And then... His company, that's his first big break. He come out of the war with millions of dollars in cash from that contract and sets themselves up as the company that is on the very leading edge of this brand new field, this encryption technology and devices to help countries preserve their secrets. And it just gets deeper and deeper as time goes on. So it starts, as you noted, in the 1950s with sort of handshake agreements between U.S. intelligence. In the 1960s, the CIA is actually paying this company hundreds of thousands of dollars to restrict its sales. Don't sell this country your best equipment, sell them the bad stuff so that we can listen to them. And then it gets even deeper in the 70s when the CIA actually buys it and goes all in and starts actually designing the machines and rigging them intentionally with vulnerabilities so that U.S. spy agencies can crack the codes and expose dozens and dozens of countries' communications. I mean, at times they were making two models of whatever the encryption devices were, one so they could sell to the foreign governments they wanted to spy on, and ones for the U.S. and for allies. They had a completely split arrangement where they would have real, actual functioning encryption machines with strong security coming off the factory floor. And those would go to the friendly countries. Those would go to the good guys in the U.S. view. And then you had all of these other ones that were intentionally sabotaged. And those were delivered throughout Latin America, throughout Africa, throughout the Middle East. I know that once it got into the more circuit-based systems and the advances started coming, that's when the CIA really started designing the products themselves. And how did those work that they were able to kind of uh, cheat the system or help crack that pattern at least? So it's really fascinating how all of this works. I mean, the the sort of details, the technical details are sometimes difficult to understand, but nevertheless fascinating. Early on, they were pretty crude devices. They were just boxes with a bunch of gears in it. A soldier would have to spin this dial on the front letter by letter to spell out messages. Every time you dial to a new letter, you pull a crank down and it spits out on a piece of paper in the back a different letter. You set up an A, you press the lever, it comes out a W and so forth. And then, you know, you have to send this message by Morse code and somebody else 
else on the receiving end has to undo it using the same device set to the same settings. Of course, technology changes enormously over the lifespan of this company. So in the 1960s, these things are no longer just hand-crank, gear-driven machines. They become electronic machines. And then ultimately, it's we're into the era of silicon chips and software. And that also helps to explain this company's kind of demise, because you and I now carry cell phones in our pockets that have texting apps and things that have far better encryptions than any of these guys dreamed of back right. in the 1950s and 60s. And so the struggle was always to keep up. The way this all reads out is that this spying program was hugely successful. They said that it accounted for roughly 40% of all the intelligence interceptions of foreign governments that the U.S. had in the 80s and like 90% for the West German intelligence. And even from the CIA history, I thought this is really interesting, a sense of gloating. They said, imagine the idea of an American government convincing a foreign manufacturer to jimmy equipment in its favor. Talk about a brave new world. This is how happy they were with this program. That comes through in these documents. Of course, this is a CIA internal history. So they're doing this and they're bragging about their accomplishments here and they're casting it in the best possible light. What those documents don't do is sort of delve into some of the more ethically difficult questions that this program also raises. I mean, it's clear now that the United States, because of this operation, was able to listen in on what governments were doing all over the world, including governments that were engaged in horrific human rights abuses, death squads in Latin America and ethnic cleansing programs in other parts of the world. I mean, it raises a lot of new questions that we frankly couldn't answer in our story today. Well, what did the U.S. know in these cases and what did it do, if anything, to either stop or expose this sort of thing? You know, it's a complicated story and yeah. I think it's going to take some time to completely unravel. One of the interesting parts was that the Soviet Union and China never purchased crypto AG's technology. So two very big countries that we dealt with, we really couldn't, quote unquote, spy on them in this sense. But there was a lot of other countries, I think at least 62 other countries that bought this that we were able to spy on. Any major story that we might know of, something that we were able to find out and something that we were able to have some type of action on that came through this program. Do we know of anything like that? Yeah, so the documents offer some glimpses into how this played out operationally at various times. They don't tell us a lot about recent years, but back in the 1980s and 1990s, the United States was relying on this capability over and over and over. We were listening to the Iranians throughout the Iran hostage crisis. We were able to confirm that Libya was responsible for the bombing of a disco in Berlin in 1986 that was designed to kill American servicemen. When the United States launched a manhunt for Emmanuel Noriega in Panama in the early 90s. They find him hiding in the Vatican embassy in Panama because the Vatican is using crypto machines. Wow. And the Americans are listening to the Vatican embassy talking with the Vatican in Rome about we have Noriega. He's come in here and he's taking refuge here. What are we supposed to do? Did any of these countries get suspicious at any point that they were being spied on, that their transmissions were being decrypted? Yeah, and to me, these are some of the most interesting stories that come out of the histories. Countries were constantly suspecting that there were problems with these devices, and yet they were constantly talked out of those suspicions and kept buying them. Iran, in particular, was highly suspicious over many years. They even arrested a crypto salesman and put him in jail for nine months and interrogated him. He had no idea he was selling rigged equipment to that government. Greg Miller, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. 
Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.